So welcome to Soul Sanctuary, where it was salt and pepper last week and Olivia Newton-John this week. So you got your iPhone or your Android, whatever, you downloaded Kahoot. Um, now, I'm trusting that you've uploaded a nickname and uh, that you're going to follow along with me. So if you guys can put it on the screen, we're going to see who's come on the game session, if possible. So if we do have a, a bit of a problem, is it up on the screen? Oh, yeah, because I'm looking at things. So you want to download that number, 707 0321, you'll see your name start popping up. You see how it's working there? So we're just going to wait just a couple minutes. Yeah, me is original. Okay, that's good. So, and what's going to happen is with Kahoot, if you've not played this before, it's a series of questions and they're timed. So you have 20 seconds to answer the question on your phone and then everything gets uh, downloaded and uploaded and we're going to participate and see what your knowledge of sexuality is all about. How's that sound, huh? <laughs> yeah. So here we go. We got Redhead. We got Friesen. Friesen. We got a couple of Friesen. So the Mennonites are in the house. Oh, Jon Snow and Stud. All right. Yeah, we do. We can control what's coming on the screen. You know that, right? So. All right. We'll just give it a few. Mennonites. That's great. That's fabulous. Now, I do have a prize for the winner, so we'll just wait a few more seconds. All right, so uh, video team, we have uh, at least 65 players. We've got more coming in. All right, 67. All right, oh, here we go. We're just going to wait a few more seconds. Yes, it's downloading. <laughs> Menno men men B. Costal? Menno B. Costal. Okay, good. 80 players? Is that it? Is everybody in? Some are still uploading. I'm going to give you one more minute. Is everybody in yet? True Machalski. <laughs> All right, that's good. All right. We're still uploading. Hi, Bruce. <laughs> Oh, Devin Fair, that's original. There we go. Okay. Yep. China man, seriously? Uh, yeah. Go Jets, yes. Okay, are we ready? Everybody's up? <laughs> I'm a Christian, all right. I think some people are actually trying to make a statement towards me that we have here. <laughs> Okay, let's do this. Are you ready? Here it goes. People who use porn have higher odds of depression, violence, and dissatisfaction with partners. True or false? Just pick one and wait. You got eight seconds, seven seconds. The faster you pick, it may tell you to, you know, that you've you, you jumped ahead of the queue, but that's all right. Just take your time. Ah, the answer is true. Ninety-eight. Okay, let's move on. Next, please. Next, please. There we go. So Sid is winning. So next, please. Porn is one of the slowest ways to kill your sexual satisfaction. True or false? 
Listen to you all think on a Sunday morning, huh? Ooh, the answer is false. Next, please. So Sid is rocking it, but not by much. Women who marry porn addicts experience a reduction in self-esteem and increases in depression. True or false? Answer is true. Patriots jumps ahead. Ooh, there's a sporting message there. Men who use porn report increased interest in coercing partners into unwanted sexual acts. Oh, there we go. Answer is true. Next one. Patriots is taking it up. All right, here we go. Why haven't we heard more about this research? North America is already addicted to porn. Porn is one of the most powerful lobbying entities. Nobody really cares. It's fake news. <laughs> Sixty-six. Porn is one of the most powerful lobbying entities. Next one. Oh, hello world has jumped to the top. All right, Jerry likes hugs. Who put that one in there? <laughs> We're gonna have a conversation. <laughs> Next one, please. Sex outside of marriage increases the odds of divorce, depression, and sexual dissatisfaction. True or false? Wow, true. Next, please. Hello, world is at the top. Next, please. Porn increases the odds of having future extramarital affairs. Boy, those answers came in quick. There, there we go. Wow, 100 of you. Next, please. Hello world's taking it away. Research also shows that married sex is significantly better than non-married sex. Research shows. True or false? Yeah, the answer is true. Next, please. Hello world's at the top. Let's go. Deep commitment, trust, and good communication are critical for long-term sexual enjoyment. The answer is true. We have to talk to the false person. <laughs> Next, please. <laughs> 
hello world at the top, let's move on. Inconsistent church attendees have better sex. For all you latecomers, (laughs) inconsistent church attendees have better sex. True or false? Think about that. Ha! The answer is false. Consistent church attendees have better sex. Research proven. I have the stats to go for it. Think about it next time. Hit next. Oh, the queen has jumped to the top. All right. Next, next, next. Uh, Question 11. Those who attend church infrequently had the lowest sexual satisfaction rates. True or false? Everybody's waiting for the answer. It's true. You need to be regular attendees to have a high satisfaction in your sexual expression. And uh, here we are at the podium. The queen. Who is the queen? Who's the queen? Queen, congratulations. I have a Starbucks card here for you. There we go. Oh, it's Mrs. McClellan. All right. And just so you know, they, the staff never saw that test, so that's great. Fantastic. Thank you for playing. Did you guys enjoy that? All right. I, I'm, I'm actually experimenting with it to uh, bring a little bit more of a diversity to what we do on a Sunday morning and uh, see how it goes from there. So last week, Pastor Jordan opened up our series here with uh, looking at the, the myth that sex is bad and the other myth that sex is God. And I think he did a great job of breaking down the barriers uh, to continue the discussion. And so today I want to talk about getting physical. However, I'm not sure that I'll be actually able to cover all that's needed within the the few minutes that we have. So it's obvious that that one thing that the world seems pretty certain about is that Christianity is an anti-sex religion. All the research that I uh, spent has uh, reinforced this idea, and some of the churches and their websites and their teachings that I've stumbled across reinforce this idea as well. And yet we, you know, as we saw last week, uh, and if you didn't catch the podcast, get on it and watch it, because uh, um, uh, the Bible holds a view that sex is, is such a beautiful, mysterious, and powerful thing that it ought to be subject, though, to boundaries like marriage. Our culture looks at the church and says we're going backwards. That's what the culture does. And it's not surprising that in this time of growing biblical illiteracy, uh, so few people have any idea of what God thinks about the subject of sexuality. And the world holds the Christian view of sex in contempt. It considers us prudish, uh, naive, and even repressive. But the Bible actually elevates sexuality as God's gift to us that is both sacred and mysterious as long as it's played out in God's design. The world's perspective degrades it to just something that feels good and another form of recreation or socialization. You're not going to hear a normal sermon this morning. Are you with me? You're going to be taught something. And that teaching my I hope and my desire is that will get you talking when you get in your car and you get home. Are you with me? So, 
Have you ever heard of the pickle principle? Um, in order to make pickles, we take cucumbers, other vegetables, and we put them in a brine, a solution of vinegar, spices, and water. And after that cucumber, let's say, soaks in the brine long enough, it's changed into what we call a pickle, right? Most of us are like pickles. Think about that. Look at the person next to you, and you're a pickle. That's basically what there is. And some of them have that sour look to them, too, so it fits really well. And so we sit in the brine and think about it this way of our sexually saturated culture. And what we do is we absorb the culture's values and beliefs and it changes the way that we think. Even most Christians are pickled today, if I can put it that way. And I'm not talking this kind of pickled, I'm talking culturally pickled. Believing and acting exactly like everybody else who's been sitting in the brine of a culture that's hostile to God and the scriptures. Now, the world's sex-saturated brine includes the belief that sex is the ultimate pleasure, that sex is God. We looked at that last week, right? The message of the TV that we watch, of the movies that we watch, the music that we listen to, the social media, is there, and the message that comes out is that there's no greater pleasure available than the search for the almighty orgasm. And it's, that is the right for every individual, even teenagers, And it's moving, when you look at our culture now, to younger children as well. Another aspect of this pickling process is the belief that nobody has the right to deprive anybody else of this greatest of all human pleasures. Uh, that, That nobody has the right to tell anybody else what is right or wrong about the expression of his or her sexuality. Are you tracking with me this morning? Okay, I'm just, you know, do I have to turn off the internet so you're not playing on your phone somewhere? Okay. So the question then comes down then, how do we as Christians deal with the trying social issues of our time? Our society has undergone a rapid transformation in terms of sexual behavior, and many would argue actually, well, it's for the better, and yet one observes that we live in a society that is suffering greatly from sexual confusion, or if you will, sexual misconduct, do we not? You know, just watch the news and what's going on out there. The culture has moved unabashedly towards the mockery of the Christian worldview. Eastern religions are protected in today's society because to critique Eastern religions is seen as culturally insensitive and prejudicial. But the Christian faith is now the target, uh, but people have forgotten that it came from the East. You with me? So how do we get to this place? And I think that in this discussion of sexuality, I need to give a general cultural summarization. And so here's the teaching mode. From the beginning of time to about 1500 AD, we have what is known as the pre-modern period. Now track with me here. In that period, God or gods is the center of the universe. There's a sense of God. There's a sense of the gods, right? Life is explained. It's understood in supernatural terms. It's a pre-scientific period. Those people gave spiritual explanations as to what went on in their physical lives. They made moral decisions based uh, on, on the supernatural that was going on around them. Things were believed to be right and wrong, Um, based on what God or the gods thought. And of course, not everybody believed in the God of Israel at this time, but history shows that civilization developed a way of thinking that looked for truth in the supernatural world. Societies didn't recognize that one true God, uh, um, 
that didn't recognize that there was one true God, but were sometimes closer to finding him and finding the truth than people are today. Why? Because they were actively seeking these things. They were looking for the supernatural. And this is what the Apostle Paul found when he walks into uh, Greece and he, he talks to this group of scholars in Athens and he says to them, men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked very carefully at your object of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. And he has this conversation and he goes on and talks about the real God. And many of the Athenians are listening and they had not formally known who God was, but they knew that there was something out there, something supernatural that they were missing. This altar that they built showed that they were looking for truth. And so when Paul shows up, they're eager to hear about God. And he was he was declaring what they had been missing. Now, another thing is clear about how ancient people looked for truth. They watched, they listened for signs of the supernatural within the natural world. Hence, Jesus shows up on the scene, and what does he do? He does all these miracles, all the supernatural to reinforce the fact that he is the Son of God. And bottom line, they expected God to reveal himself, not just through his words and circumstances, but by revelation. That's what the pre-modern uh, period was, this, this ultimate source of truth who Jesus personally fulfills. Then from about 1500 to about 1960, we have this called the modern period. And here is what happened is that God is now removed from the scene. He's taken out of the picture. And uh, <clears throat> the common ideas about truth and the supernatural have begun to change. And science and industry now begins to feed this idea that life is explained in scientific terms. And what happens is there's this elevation of the human self. And the, the, there's this human-centered worldview. And they feel that they have the ability to solve all problems now through science and reason. So instead of praising God for creating our minds, people start praising and treating the human mind as if it were God. Are you with me? And so this leads to a belief that all knowledge will now lead to progress. We're going to have this better world. But the problem lies in the fact that we've placed our faith in humans. And during this time, though, what we see... And, and it's obvious that people believed in objectivity, they believed in facts, they believed in evidence, and they believed in reason. We can think ourselves through this. Then from about 1960 to the 2000s is what's called the postmodern period. Now, some people still feel that we're in the postmodern period. I actually think that highway's closed, and we're in a different area, an age. But in the postmodern period, there's this feeling now that science and industry have not made the world a better place. In some cases, it has, but as a matter of fact, what has taken place, the shift in our culture, is that science has failed. Why? Because we still have disease. There's still wars, destruction, and death. All these still reign in our culture. And so people now have this confidence in nothing. It's a whatever. Like they, There's nothing. It's a whatever-centered universe. And people now believe in subjectivity. They believe in personal experiences, really the counters that I have. So now we live in a time where we find ourselves today where the decision-making is no longer based on facts. Now listen with me. There's no longer based on facts. Our decision-making is based on how we feel at the moment, right? Okay. Now, this reality, though, is constantly changing, this is the world we live in. We, we live in a time where we've said goodbye to truth 
and hello to what is known as moral relativism. And I'll have a, a slide that shows later on the details if you don't know what that is. And so now sin in and of itself has become this conceptual impossibility. And the only wrong idea in our culture is to believe in truth. And the only sin in our culture is to believe in sin. Are you tracking with me? Okay, because I don't want to be putting anybody to sleep, but I do want to stir a pot. That's what I'm saying today. So in our world, the, the idea of absolute truth, something that is true at all times, in all places, and has relevance for our lives, is about as extinct as a dinosaur. In fact, nearly three out of four people say that there's no such thing as ultimate or absolute truth. And that stat applies to people within the church as well. So now there's no such thing as truth, so what we have is only preferences. There's no standards, there's no unified center, therefore truth is just these little bits of fragments. And it's true at one moment, but it can change at any time. So now culture replaces the church word immorality with amorality. And now, since there's no such thing as sin, there's then no such thing as guilt. And immorality suggests that there's a right and wrong, suggests and implies that there's guilt when we're wrong. So let's change it. Let's call it amorality. In other words, there's no real right or wrong. It's how you feel. And a direct result is that there's no longer a hope for a future in our culture. Rather, that hope that we used to have is now replaced by despair. And people's attitudes in the culture have become cutting and pessimistic. And this is the world in which we live in. At the same time, we find that people are longing for connection and permanence. They're looking for it. And so what we do is we use social media as that tool. Uh, it becomes our friendship platform. But yet, in some respects, we're still afraid to have the face-to-face -face conversations. What we also see is that there's this resurgence in our culture and interest of spirituality. But at the same time, there's this bias against and a rejection of Christianity. Christianity is rejected. It's denied because we claim that we have the only truth. So in this spiritual society that doesn't accept any point of truth, people now begin to eat at the buffet of faith. And we pick and choose what we want. And truth now is treated like a fairy tale. It's an outdated idea, even an insult to human intelligence. And the motto of the day becomes whatever, right? Whatever. Believe whatever you want. Do whatever seems best to you. Live for whatever brings you pleasure, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, right? But don't try to tell anybody that their whatever is wrong, we have to be tolerant. And I'll extrapolate that in a second. See, everybody adds a little something of what they want to believe to form their own version of spirituality. But if there's no basis for our moral decisions, then whatever you choose to do is fine. And of course, most people like to believe that they have some basis for the decisions that they make. And so what we do now is we construct our own standards. Even though most people have thrown out reason as the source for ultimate truth, some will still cling to it. Some people that you encounter will say, you know, if I can't see it, if I can't hear it, if I can't smell it, if I can't taste it, if I can't touch it, if I can't test it, well, then it can't be true. 
right? We, we have those conversations all the time. But then there's the cult of popular opinion. And you only have to look as far as your TV to know that society thinks a popular, popular opinion is a good basis for making decisions. The Judeo-Christian worldview is the target of our Western media. The media is the single greatest destroyer of the notion of absolutes and of the Judeo-Christian worldview. Oh, conspiracy. No, no, truth. <laughs> Watch, listen. The meteor is the defender, the meteor, <laughs> the media is the defender of sexual freedom. And it's the force behind the sway of popular opinion. And now what has happened in the media is word games come into play in our vocabulary. And the media holds this relativistic convictions. What you're supposedly, the media advertises themselves as prejudice free. While the church is pictured not as something which holds onto absolute convictions, but rather it is now branded with all types of phobias. So any questioning of sexual freedom is castigated as a phobia. And so the church is labeled with many derogatory terms, such as being homophobic, Islamophobic, and others. And yet I find it absolutely stunning and amazing that atheists are not called theophobes. Why not? You're an atheist? Oh, you're a theophobe. Or if you don't like Christians, then you're a Christophobe. Like, come on. But that's basically what has taken place in our culture. Anyways, our emotions are perhaps, and finally, the most popular basis for making choices today. After all, how can anybody argue with how you feel? I can't argue with how you feel. And if feelings are a good standard then for our decision making, then you'll never have to come up with a better than defense that I did it because I felt like it. Why'd you do that? I did it because I felt like it. And it doesn't take a whole lot of what-if scenarios if all of these approaches to decision-making, you know, uh, based on feelings, leads to major problems. What if you're asking a question that science cannot answer? What if the group that you're involved in changes its opinion? How do you know which opinion now is right? What if following your feelings, think about this, leads you to an action with consequences you can't handle? And so we've gotten ourselves into this whatever mess, and it's getting harder and harder to live in it. Are you with me? So where does that leave us? So if we, the church, if I can say it, have absolute truth, it gives us both a way to explain to the world around us and a basis for the decisions that we make. Because without it, we're alone. Without this idea of absolute truth, we're seven billion organisms running around, bumping into each other with nothing unifying to work for or to believe in, right? Every, every man for himself, every woman for herself, and we're here without a purpose. And if there's no true story of where we came from, and if there's no true story of why we're here, then there's nothing that really gives our lives any meaning. That sounds a little depressing, doesn't it? So how do we as Christians deal with the trying social issues of our time? How do you respond to people who accuse the church of being hateful or repressive to those who support lifestyles that are maybe not according to the precepts of our faith? Well, first of all, we have a logical problem. 
And it's seen in the form of the word tolerance, my favorite. Because tolerance defined as the ability or willingness to tolerate something, in particular, the existence of opinions or behaviors that one does not necessarily agree with. And so in case you've missed it, our culture champions the word tolerance, but doesn't practice it, especially when it comes to Christianity. Culture ultimately reduces itself to three forms of manifestation on moral issues. They're the synonymous culture, the heteronymous culture, and the autonomous culture. I want to break these down if you follow with me. The theonomous culture is the God law. It's the idea that the, the culture is, uh, that the God law is so self-evident within the human heart that there are some imperatives that are just naturally built within you uh, <clears throat> and that you find a consensus with all of society. That, that's God's law in you. It's so ingrained in your soul that there's this emerging consensus within society of certain norms that absolutely everybody agrees with there, and, and that are nor, noble or the opposite of being evil and that you don't pursue those things. And, and this culture actually was probably found in ancient Israel, but today we would find this type of culture in India. Are you with me? So, and now understand I'm speaking on generic terms, fairly general here. Then there's the heteronomous culture. Hetero meaning different and nomus again law. The, there are two distinct sets now in operation and there's this controlling few up top and then the masses down below. And so Marxism would be a, a heteronomous culture where a, a handful at the top dictate everything to the masses down below. In religious terms, Islam functions as a heteronymous culture because you have the ayatollah or you have an imam who dictates you from above and the masses are then told how to follow along. And so there's this heteronomy to it. And the law comes from above. It's dictated to the masses whether you want to do it or not. And then there's the autonomous culture, the self-law. This is the Western world. This is where we find ourselves, where you're a law unto yourself. You, you follow your individual autonomy, and Canada doesn't fit into a synonymous culture, and it doesn't uh, fit into a heteronymous culture by definition, but we pride ourselves that we are an autonomous culture. And if we are that culture, then I have to allow people, now listen very carefully, if we live in this culture, I have to allow people to voice their opinions even if I disagree with them or if I think they're wrong. Am I correct? Right, I am. Of course I am. I got the microphone. The bigger question is this. Are these very same people going to give me the privilege of my autonomy as well? Or as soon as you disagree with my answer, will you shift to a heteronomous mode and then now I become labeled with some sort of phobia? And I'm told that my truth is wrong and I'm told exactly what I need to believe and not exactly what I believe. Are you tracking with me here? Do you hear my words? Autonomous cultures then tend to run into a conflict when everybody has their own autonomy, and that becomes a huge sociological issue. Now, there's also a theological problem. Because remember, we live in a biblically illiterate culture, and even people within the church who identify as Christians have no clue what the Bible says. Why? Because you don't study it. They don't ask the hard questions. They live their faith with their feelings, and they want their feelings to back up their faith, 
Now you can say amen or ouch or either way, you know I'm right. Preach it. That's what I want to hear. I'll drink to that. That's a good point. (laughs) Oh, if you're visiting, it's just hot water. That's all. So when the pastor gets up and makes a statement, I just set you up. And the pastor gets up and he takes a stand on the issue. Some Christians get bent out of shape and they'll stand up and say, you know, I don't agree with that. I'm leaving. Okay? And they flock to some other church only to have the repeat process all over again. Listen, I cannot tell you how many times people looked me in my face, and it happened even this week. I had to laugh. Where they looked at me, they said, you know, Jerry, I don't agree with everything you teach or do. I'm shattered. (laughs) I'm absolutely, really? That's a shock to my system. You don't agree with me. You're hurting my feelings. I'm I'm sorry. I, I actually thought that every time all of you come on a Sunday morning, you all agree with me, and I'm preaching to the choir. Oh, goodness, people. Newsflash. I don't agree with everything you guys do, everything you say, or everything you believe either. Welcome to the church. Good night. You don't see me going out into the parking lot, talking to the Forbes today, saying, hey, don't let that car in because they think differently from me. They're a little bit, you know, interpret the Bible a little bit liberal. They don't belong here. No, no. This is so sanctuary. Everybody is welcome. Right? Everybody is welcome. I don't care what your baggage is. I don't care what your swing is. I don't care anything. This is church and everybody is welcome. Come, learn, be challenged. Take me to task scripturally. Don't swallow everything I present to you blindly. This is not a cult. Some people think it is, but this is not a cult. But let's get hungry together. Let's study the word together. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. My rant's over. (laughs) So not only do we have a logical problem, a sociological problem, we have a theological problem. People believe the church has issues with sexuality in general. But we as Christians believe that there is a right and well, wrong as well as certain boundaries as to how we're supposed to handle our sexuality because sex is seen from Scripture as a sacred gift. In the New Testament alone, if you look from Matthew to Revelation, we hear this term called sexual immorality. Jesus uses it. Luke uses it. Paul uses it. Jude uses it. John uses it. So what does sexual immorality mean? It comes from the root word pornea. Sound familiar? And it refers very clearly to all sex, all sex outside the bonds of marriage is prohibited by God. When that word is used within the context of scripture, it's always used in the context of relationships. And any type of sex outside the relationship of marriage is not God's ideal. That's basically what we need to hear and understand. As a matter of fact, scripture calls it sin. Jordan outlined last week that God invented sex. That's a sacred gift. It's a natural part of God's design for us. It's intended for pleasure, but it's reserved for marriage. We weren't designed for temporary fleeting positions, but for the wholeness that comes from a one flesh union for life. A biblical worldview treats sex as intrinsically good, and it expresses the intimate, the spiritual, the emotional unity of marriage. And like most gifts, sex can be celebrated or it can be abused. And that's where I want to go next week. 
But today we see that marriage, as, as God has given it to us, is the most sacred relationship that you can enter. The scripture uh, has, uses the word love, but it has four words to describe love, while we in English only have one word. Scripture uses agape love, which is God's love. It uses eros, which is the romantic or sexual. It uses phileo, which is the friendship love. And it uses storge, which is a parental or familial love. And so when we get married, the idea is that marriage is the only thing that actually pulls all four of these dynamics together in a relationship. And that's what gives the Bible the sacredness of marriage. As Christ is to the church, the, the, the illusions of the bridegroom and the bride, there's the sacredness and the, the beauty and the consummate relationship between a man and a woman. And it's shown in the singular commitment of the marital vow. I do and I will. When you say I do to one, you say I don't to all the others. When you say I will to one, you say I won't to all the others. And any departure from that beauty and that sacredness of the four confluences of love, which is a biblical notion of what it really means to be married, it's not right and it's not acceptable in the sight of God. So we have a logical problem, we have a sociological problem, we got a theological problem, we also have a relational problem. Historic Christianity attests that sexuality is sacred, but our culture has now desacralized sexuality. And this is an emptiness of the essential purpose and, and, and the meaning, and it leads to this loss of essential purpose in life itself. This is why it's empty to say that, you know, if two people just love each other, they can express it any way they choose. Well, love is not defined in a way that is self-referencing. It ultimately hangs on the peg of God's love and how, how he defines love. And here's the hard part. Now, let me just be really honest and transparent. I accept all people with love and genuineness, regardless of what their view is on anything, even if it's different than mine. I do. I accept it. I can put around a person who has a different view of marriage. I can put a my arm around a person who has a different view of sexual uh, expression. I struggle to put around my arm around a person who has a different view of politics. Just throwing it out there for honesty's sake. <laughs> but I have to. But I'll tell you this. God gives you, you, the most sacred gift of the prerogative of choice. But God will not give you the privilege of determining the different outcome to what that choice will entail. The consequences are bound to choice. And so when I look at the sacredness of marriage, any change from the biblical point of view is a departure from the biblical mandate. But in the same time, listen to me very carefully, what does the Bible command us to love? To love our neighbors as ourselves and to love those who we even disagree with. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves, and, and our responsibility as a church is to never hate individuals. Our privilege is to love them. And only God can judge the heart of a person. That is not our call. And God is the ultimate judge. And in the light of a pluralistic society in which we live, live in, let us as Christians, can we just be light and salt and learn to love one another and let God be the judge over us all? And so the church has historically taught to wait until marriage before engaging in any form of sexuality. And so let's start with the single people of our culture this morning. There are many different types of single people. I'm not just talking about teens and young adults. 
We have people who have never married. We have others who are widowed. We have those who are separated. We have those who are divorced. Some have turned down opportunities of marriage. Others have never had those opportunities. There are single people who have or who are currently involved in sexual relationships outside of marriage. There are those who are virgins. There are singles who love who long above all else, all they want is to be married. There are those who are single that abhor the idea of marriage. Some singles see their singleness as a special gift or maybe even a call from God. Others actually see it as a very cruel curse. And so the fact of the matter is every unmarried person has a unique history and has individual needs. But we all, what we all have in common, when you think about it, is a sexuality which is integrated into our very nature because this is how God has made us all. Your sexuality has nothing to do with whether or not you're having sex. As ridiculous as it sounds, some Christians grow up thinking that they'll be magically become sexual when they get married. And it's all going to fall into place. And before marriage, you know, their sexuality is supposed to be lying dormant. Well, that's not a chance. Great, we got children here. I have to say this. Jordan sort of opened up the doors that our family was fairly open sexually around the dinner table until, you know, Lauren came in. <laughs> and then the doors flung wide open. Um, <laughs> the best way to stop a conversation around the dinner table with your kids if they're really aggravating you is just to look at them and say, I sleep with your mother. It just stops everything right there. <laughs> just off the side. Anyway, let's go on. That's why I need to stick with my notes. Um, our sexuality is not carp... Um, um, compartmentalized. We're not there just waiting for marriage. It's integrated on all aspects of our being. It's our intellect. It's our emotion. It's our relation. It's our spiritual. It's a core part of who God created you to be. I deeply believe that the biblical teaching to reserve sexual intimacy for, for marriage is still relevant for today. The fullness of the sexual expression was created to be expressed only within the covenant of marriage. And no amount of modern science or situational ethics can erase the fact that your sexuality is, is, is uh, about more than just your body. Sexual intercourse is a powerful emotion and spiritual bonding that will always have implications. There's no such thing as casual sex. Well, God commands you to save sexual intimacy for your marriage. Your sexuality is something that's always there, even when sex isn't a part of your life. Because we tend to talk only about the physical act of sex. We ignore the fact that our sexuality, that ultimately it drives us into relationships. It makes us desire a marriage. It expresses uh, uh, our longing to be known. We want to be heard, understood. We want to be protected. That's what we are. We're longing to be vulnerable, soul to soul with another person. And ultimately our longing to be known by God. And as a single person, our sexuality serves a purpose. The overemphasis of the act of sex often makes us miss the fact that sexuality is about intimacy and relationship. The problem is we confuse intimacy and sex. And so in our world, the two ideas have become intertwined again. In fact, sexual intimacy is just one aspect of intimacy. And I, I have an intimate relationship. I have intimate relationships with other men, other women, but I'm not having sex with them. Are you tracking with me? 
A core aspect of our sexuality is the yearning to, to be known and to share intimately with the other person. And yes, that's expressed then in the fullness of marriage. Yet our sexuality deeply impacts how I relate to other people outside of the bedroom. Your longing to nurture, to connect, to share, to trust another person wholly are all aspects of God's image expressed in our sexuality. It's a good thing. Ephesians 5 alludes to the fact that sex within the marriage is a holy metaphor that points to the spiritual mystery of God's covenant love for us. Throughout scripture, sex is used to express aspects of God's covenant and the degree of intimacy that he has with his people. This means that married men and women should be learning the mysteries of God as they experience sex together. So the act between a man and a woman within their marriage is a spiritual act. And I believe that singles can also understand something deeper about God through their sexuality. Jesus talked about how we'll mourn and long for the bridegroom when he's not with us. We will ache for his presence. We'll have deep longings that are unmet. Singles definitely get this. When I read the expressions of spiritual longing expressed in some of the Psalms, I can't help but think of single people yearning for true intimacy with another human being. Take a look. It says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there's no water. I long, I faint with longing to enter the courts of the Lord with my whole being, body, and soul. And I will shout joyfully. To, there's a longing there. And the struggle for sexual purity, newsflash, just isn't for singles. I think we'd lose it here. Married people and single people have a whole lot more in common than they realize. And I think we actually do each other a great disservice when we compartmentalize sexual conversations to single and to married. Because do you realize that many married people, both men and women, struggle with sexual frustration and temptations? I've met so many young men and women who think that their struggle to stay pure would end with a wedding ceremony. Wrong. Sexual purity is a battle throughout life. It simply takes a different form once you get married. Your married friends are free to have sex with their spouse, but that doesn't mean that they aren't struggling with porn, unmet desires, images from the past, extramarital flirtations, abuse, uh, and conflict over how, you know, there's even conflict in marriages as to how often we have sex in the marriage. Did you hear that? You hear the preacher? I think the biblical standard is every hour, but I'm not quite sure. I'm still researching that. I'm not sure Sharon agrees. I've been trying to manipulate her completely, but there we are. So why is this all important for you to know as a single? Because I think when you take a step back and look just in, uh, outside of your own personal sexuality, you'll understand that sexuality is not just an on-off switch that we call marriage. It means something that being an adult sexual woman or man is a part of God's design for you as one who bears the image of Christ. As a Christian, you bear the image of Christ. Your sexuality is a part of that. That is how he created us. And I don't fully understand it, but I know it's a mystery, and it's still a reality. Can I change it up here for a second? If you're single and ready to mingle, you know, I always hear people, you know, you got any marital advice for us? I do have a collection of thoughts to ponder over my lifetime of experience. 
Like what to look in for a spouse. Let me start with the ladies, can I? There's a certain thing a man does during the dating phase of his relationships that shows either he, he's not ready for marriage or he's not worthy of marriage. You might say things like, well, Jerry, you don't know him like I know him. Right? He's really a good person. Really, really. He, he'll change someday. He'll change. I know it. You live in denial. That's what it is. And I, honestly, I've seen this played out a million times. And you won't be the exception. I'll just say this as a pastor. Your temporary tears of breaking up with a guy is far easier than the permanent heartache of being too married to a man who does the following things. And if anything, and I'll say this to you ladies, if anything, any of these things that I talk about is consistently happening in your relationship, don't marry him. Please just break up. Trust me. Oh, you're a pastor. How can you say that? Easy. I just did. So in no particular order, if this guy that you're interested in sees himself as a victim when things don't go his way, break up with him. Because we all face adversity. And ladies, you need a man who sees himself as an overcomer. When he gets knocked down, he gets up again, right? <clears throat> Tub thumping, chumbawamba, there we go. He gets up again, and he brushes himself back up, and he doesn't get bitter, and he doesn't make excuses. He keeps going, and the struggles that he goes through makes him stronger. And if your man is always whining when things don't go his way, he's not headed anywhere in life that you want to go. Right. Oh, that was my wife saying that. <laughs> Getting a little nervous. If he checks out other women or sees no problem with looking at porn, dump his sorry. <laughs> if your boyfriend whips his head around at every woman wearing yoga pants or if he thinks that porn is no big deal, you need to get rid of him because if he doesn't respect you enough to keep his eyes on you, he won't keep his heart on you either. He's showing you a deep flaw in his character and don't think that you can change it or that he's going to outgrow it. If he avoids responsibility instead of seeking it out, if he's living in his parents' basement with no desires to move out or he's more excited about playing video games than he is about building a career, listen, ladies, you need to walk away. Responsibility is a prerequisite to manhood. And if he doesn't want it, then he's forfeiting the right to become a husband and even a father someday. I love that picture. Welcome to Seoul. If he's disrespectful to his elders... If he doesn't know how to give respect, he'll never be somebody worthy of getting respect. If he's always bad-mouthing his boss, his parents, his teachers, or other in his life, he's showing you a lot more about his character than he is about their own character. If he's frequently angry and he doesn't control his temper, if he's a hothead and he's going to get himself into trouble, eventually he'll get you into trouble too. If he's quick to get angry, that's not a sign of passionate conviction. It's a sign of immaturity and recklessness. Dump him. Dump him if he's lazy. If he avoids work instead of getting, taking pride in a job well done. If he doesn't work hard or have any desire to work hard. Ladies, run. Run. He should desire to be a provider and not a freeloader. And finally, if he doesn't value, ladies, listen, if he doesn't value your dreams. Right? 
if he doesn't value your dreams, if his future is only about the things that he wants to do, he's showing you that there's, there's really no place for you in this relationship. He just wants you around as a trophy or as a sidekick or as a secretary for his ende- endeavors. If that's the place, then you need to run. You need a man who will value you as a partner and not look to you as a doormat. Now, gents, I got a list for you. As a matter of fact, if you're do- dating a woman who's doing any of these things on this list, again, I would strongly caution you against pursuing marriage unless she's willing to change these dangerous behaviors and attitudes. And no matter how much chemistry you have together, no matter how sweet she can be, no matter how attracted and good-looking she is to you, if you ignore these warning signs, you're probably destined for a miserable marriage. Welcome to Seoul, where we break up your relationships. <laughs> Listen, guys, if she's flirting with other guys other than you, to get attention or to get favors. You know, flirtation could seem harmless and fun, but if you're in a committed relationship with a woman and she continues to flirt with other guys, that's a huge warning sign. Ladies are going, oh, don't step on my toes. No, I've just begun. If she uses her sexuality to gain men's attention from other guys other than yourself, it's, it's an extension of flirting. And this takes it to a new level. If a woman allows herself, listen very carefully, to be objectified by man, for the purposes of attention or for praise or preferential treatment. Guys, break up. She's not acting like a potential wife. She's acting like somebody's potential mistress. Those are hard words. If she doesn't live within her financial means or expects other people to uh, finance her preferred lifestyle, She's a gold digger, you know what I'm saying? If she's always running up the credit card debt or has other people you know, to pick up her bill while showing little or no personal responsibility, then guys, you need to run. I'm not saying chivalry should be dead and a guy shouldn't pay for a lady when you're out on dates. I prefer it the other way around personally, but I, uh, uh, you can do it every once in a while. We live in an equal society. But I'm talking about a person who has a lifestyle and a mindset that is reckless, is selfish and materialistic. There was one couple that got married and she didn't self-disclose until after the wedding that she was $100,000 in debt. Financial stress is one of the main causes of divorce. And if she has no interest in managing resources and responsibilities when you're dating, you're in for a world of financial stress after you're married and hurt. If she doesn't support your dreams, guys, it goes both ways. If you're dating or engaged to somebody who doesn't support and celebrate your dreams or your goals, don't marry them. They're showing a lot of selfishness while showing a lot of disregard for you. Marry somebody who's going to be your biggest encourager, your biggest cheerleader, not your biggest critic. Marry somebody who will make you dream even bigger dreams, not somebody who's going to undermine your dreams. If she tries to isolate you from people who care about you, ooh, Any dating relationship and marriage will have important times of exclusivity where it's just the two of you, you know, and and, and the two of you are, are together more often than you are with everybody else. But if she is trying to pull you away from your family, or if he is trying to pull you away from your family, if they're trying to pull you away from your friends and loved ones, it's revealing something very dangerous. If she doesn't value the people who you value, then she's trying to create a future with you where those loved ones won't be part of the picture. And if that's true and they're your loved ones, you need to run. If she loves drama, <laughs> oh, yeah. if you are with somebody who loves drama, then just run. I don't, I don't even need to say more. Seriously, if she's always gossiping, venting on something on social media, 
or she's hyper emotional and, you know, to get her way. She's not ready for marriage. Don't try to justify it. Don't assume it will all grow it. Just break up. Trust me. Just break up. It's easier. She seems much more interested in having a great wedding than having a great marriage. Ouch, right? Look, it's fine to dream about a wonderful wedding, but if she is obsessed with the idea of the perfect wedding and seems to be giving little thought to the marriage that will follow, then, then she's looking for a one-day experience and not a lifetime commitment. It's, it's just a wedding. Words from the wise. Put up with the initial pain of heartbreak rather than a lifetime of misery. And I conclude with this, single or married, Yielding our sexuality under the lordship of Christ will always be a challenge. It's not easy. Instead, how, how can you express your sexualities in ways that are honoring to God and validate your longings for intimacy? Well, first of all, we need all of us in this room need to guard our minds. Again, we live in this sex-saturated culture. The accessibility to porn on every mobile device makes it seem impossible not to think about sex. You know, others who aren't tempted by visual porn may consume emotional porn. In other words, movies, romance novels. And the reality shows that present romance in, in, in a light that's far from reality. The Songs of Solomon warns us not to awaken love before its time. So we need to know what fuels our thinking and we need to, then gets our engine running with nowhere to go. So we need to guard our mind. That's a biblical principle. Secondly, we need to channel our desires for intimacy in a healthy way. And I'm not just talking about cold showers. Uh, remember that intimacy doesn't mean sex. And I believe that many who struggle with sexual temptation are longing for, for intimacy more than they are actually longing for sex. And although we have hormones and sexual longings, that they are not nearly as powerful as our drive for intimacy. The physical act of sex, while it's beautiful in its expression, of intimacy is a cheap replacement for it. And so we live in a world that sabotages intimacy at every step while promoting sex as an adequate substitute. No amount of sex, be it real or imagined, can compensate for any lack of intimacy. God may or may not have marriage in you for the future, but his will for you is to have intimate relationships within the body of Christ. And in some cases, deep friendships can even be more fulfilling than marriage. Finally, I was reminded of Anna in Luke chapter 2. And I think what happens is that we can actually take a lesson from a widow. The other day I noticed that she's an unsung heroine uh, uh, of the Bible. and her, uh, We don't really know much about her and her story is recorded in Luke 2. But here was a widow who knew marital and sexual intimacy as a young woman. And when she was widowed, she didn't search for intimacy with another man. But she simply dedicated herself to serving the Lord until she was 84 years old. Her constant pursuit was rewarded with the presence that she would actually encounter Jesus. And if Anna were alive today, I wonder what her advice would be. And I'd love to ask her about the experience as a married woman, then who chose to live a life of singleness, seeking intimacy with God. Because so often we view intimacy with God as this trite, you know, suggestion for our own personal loneliness. And yet Anna was a woman who believed that worshiping and seeking God could even be more fulfilling than the expression of her sexuality in marriage. So does this mean we all need to be monks or nuns, you know, and, and, and be married to Christ? No, not at all. It's not at all what I'm saying. But true intimacy is to be found in worship and obedience to God. 
You may sing about it every Sunday, but do we experience becomes the question. Do you know what it is to cry out as David did? You, you know, my heart, my flesh cry out to you, the living God. And when we do that, do you realize that God is going to begin to answer? Here's what I want to leave with you. Allow your sexuality and your longings to remind you that God has created you for relationship. And relationship with others and relationship with him. Next week, we're going to look at what happens when sex goes wrong. You came in like a wrecking ball. <laughs> we're going to talk to both marrieds and singles, and we're going to look at it from there, but let's pray. Will you stand with me, please? Heavenly Father, open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts today to catch a glimpse of your vision for our lives and for all creation, to witness the presence of Christ in this place and in one another to feel the Spirit of God moving around us, among us, and within us. And you've placed us in this place and time, and you have given us the breath in our lungs and the bodies which we inhabit. I, I just ask that you would forgive us for believing that we know better than what you know is best for our lives and for others. Forgive our selfishness, which tells us to hold back from others the gifts that you gave us freely. We're drawn together as a community to give thanks, to be renewed, and to share our lives that we might gain a glimpse of your joyous life and join the dance of the Father. So God, just be with us. If there are those here today who are just struggling with issues regarding their own sexuality, I just pray that you would meet with them, that you would touch them that you would give them courage to come and to talk to us, to write us, that we could walk with them. Father, I just pray maybe for those who are open to knowing who you are, just impress upon their spirit, God, to, to take out and to reach out to you. And now as we go, God, just be with us. In ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for the blessing. Those receiving the blessing did likewise. I want you to close with your first song, please. Here's your blessing, Soul Sanctuary. When you work, work in strength and humility for the Lord. Just do it. When you rest, rest in the sovereign grace of God our Father. Just do it. When you celebrate, oh yeah, party as people with the greatest reason for love, joy, and celebration. Just do it. Now, go with grace, the quiet strength, and the forgiveness of our loving Savior in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now go and do it. Go in peace and live the church, and we'll see you next week.